1 Corinthians chapter 13, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been for a while now in a study in 1 Corinthians, and we'll continue that today. I'm going to try to cut it a little bit short and leave plenty of time at the end of the service for our baptism, but uh, I do want to get uh, at least the gist of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in today. Very, very familiar passage of Scripture. Probably some of you could quote it nearly by heart. You've heard it or read it so many times. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part. But then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful passage of scripture. And Lord, it's one that we oftentimes would pluck out of context and just speak on uh, just it all alone. And, and, and it would be wonderful. And yet, Lord, it does fit into the overall context of what we've been discussing. And so I pray today, teach us. Teach us how it applies. Teach us how it applies to the things we've been learning from 1 Corinthians. And teach us, Lord, how it applies to each of us individually. Lord, help us to love. Father, we are not good at this. I'm not good at this. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us today to learn what it means when the Bible tells us that we ought to love one another. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I studied this passage of scripture this past week, preparing for today's message, I became painfully aware as I was going through here that I have misused this passage of scripture at times in the past. We've all heard this passage used at weddings. It's probably the most common thing read at weddings. I've read it at many weddings. I've used it in wedding uh, services that I've uh, done myself. But you know, the, the, the thing is, this is not talking about weddings. This is not talking about marital love at all. It's not talking about that. We use it that way. It could be applied that way, but that's not the primary interpretation of this particular passage of Scripture. Some of you may be aware that in the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written, there's more than one word translated love in our English Bibles. Uh, we don't like to talk a lot about Greek because people's eyes glaze over, but the fact is here it makes sense that we would understand it. 
there are actually at least three words uh, that are translated as love in our English New Testament. There's one that is the, well, eros, I don't think is in the New Testament, but there is the Greek word eros, from which we get our word erotic, and it refers to romantic love. There is the Greek word phileos, which means friendship or brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia, phileos, Delphia, the city of brotherly love. And then there is the Greek word agape, which is charitable or Godly love. The word that is used in this chapter is not eros, it's not phileos, it is the word agape. It's talking about godly love. And we can certainly apply that to marriage, that, that characteristic ought to be in our marriages, right? We ought to love each other as God loves us. We ought to love each other expecting nothing in return. We ought to love each other in a charitable way. All those things ought to be true. But that's really not the primary interpretation of this chapter. This chapter is actually talking about love in the context of the church talking about love specifically in the context of spiritual gifts. You remember, we, we started talking about spiritual gifts last week. We started talking all the way back in chapter 11 about behavior in the church. Chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians are all describing, and for the most part, answering questions the Corinthians had about how our church ought to function, how we ought to behave, what ought to be our attitude in the local church. In chapter 11, we had the matter of head coverings on women which we labored through and got through that, but that was an, an issue that had to do with the local church. And in chapter 11, we also talked about the matter of uh, the Lord's table and how we ought to behave as we gather around the Lord's table. What is the right way to emphasize that? Chapter 12, we started looking at last week, and we saw the matter of spiritual gifts mentioned for the first time. And we're going to see that that topic, the topic of spiritual gifts, continues not only through chapter 12, but here in chapter 13 and all the way through chapter 14, where the emphasis will continue to be on spiritual gifts. And so when we read that Paul says that a vitally important characteristic in a believer's life is love, and certainly we see that here, don't we? We also need to understand that he's talking about love that we ought to have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for one another within the church. Such a love. That love is described here in the very last verse as the greatest of these. It is said to be the very essence of godliness. It is a characteristic of God himself. John said God is love. It is described elsewhere in the Bible as evidence of our salvation to us personally and to all of the world. That they look at us and they see our love. And it is evidence to them of the reality of that which we believe. We're commanded in scripture to love one another. We're not commanded to Phileos one another, brotherly love one another. We're commanded to agape one another, love one another, as is described here in chapter 13. And so, in this passage, which has been described by some as the New Testament psalm of love, let's see what it has to say for us. And I, and I think there's four different things we can talk about from this passage. First of all, let's talk about the necessity of love. The necessity of love. And that's in the first three verses, verses 1. Through three. Now, we mentioned that Paul spent a lot of time in chapter 12 talking about spiritual gifts and laying some groundwork there. He went so far as to make it very, very clear that every single Christian has a spiritual gift. We learned that last week. But now, in chapter 13, he kind of like shifts gears and he says, even though that's all so important, he says here that if we don't have love, those gifts are useless. Those gifts are meaningless. Those gifts are profitless. The Corinthians magnified spiritual gifts. 
They were a gifted church. We learned that all the way back in chapter 1. The very first time we looked at Corinthians, we saw this. Verse number 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. They were a gifted church. In verse number 7 of chapter 1, it says, You come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we don't know for certain if at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul was answering a question. We saw that in some other, some other parts of chapter 11. We saw that he was answering specific questions they had written him about. It's kind of implied that perhaps here in chapter 12, he is still answering questions about spiritual gifts. And if that's true, if it's true, it also shows for us that they had a zeal. They were concerned enough about spiritual gifts to ask about them. And so this was a gifted church. They had a zeal for spiritual gifts. When we get to chapter 14, we'll see in verse number 12, and you just look ahead if you want, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. And so it would seem like this church had it all together, and yet, like in every other place, they needed some correction, they needed some guidance. And the Corinthians were not getting the importance of love in the exercise of their gifts. Let's review just a little bit about some of the things we learned last week. We did learn, didn't we, that every single Christian has a spiritual gift. Remember that? Look over chapter 12 and look at verse number 7. Of everything we ever talk about spiritual gifts, these are some of the most important truths. Verse number 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is to be given to each one for the profit of all. And we talked about that last week, about how every Christian has a gift or gifts. Chapter 12, verse number 11 says, But one and the, self same, one and the same, same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. And so every single Christian has a spiritual gift. We learned that those spiritual gifts are for the good of the church. It's not for my personal well-being that I've been given a gift or gifts. It's for the good of the local church. That's what verse 7 means when it says, For the common good or for the profit with all, if you're holding the King James Bible. It's for the good of the church. And so he's laid all that groundwork. And now, in chapter 13, we're going to learn that all of these gifts, which are so important, are meaningless without love. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. Tongues are no good without love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I know we didn't spend any time last week defining the list of gifts that are mentioned there. And I know there's questions about some of those things. When he speaks here about the gift of tongues, he's really just speaking about the gift of languages. And it was certainly one that was prized by the Corinthian church. Uh, we know from all the way back in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came and the church was formed, it said that... Uh, People spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it says that people, uh, they're standing around, heard them all speaking in their own languages. That's the gift of tongues. Uh, the ability to speak in a language that is not your own. I could go off and learn a language. Actually, I'd struggle with that. I've always struggled with that kind of thing. But a person could go off and learn a language. That's not what's described here. These people were instantaneously given the ability to speak in a language they had no idea of before that. That's the gift of tongues. And it was a gift that the Corinthians thought was the absolute most important gift. It's the one that they were seeking after. And Paul says here, okay, yeah, that's great, but without love, it is meaningless. He said, prophecy is no good without love. Verse number two, although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. The gift of prophecy is, at least in one sense, just the foretelling of the word of God. In another sense, the gift of prophecy is the foretelling, the future 
that's what we normally think of when we think of the matter of prophecy. But there is a sense in which prophecy is something that occurs even today, and prophecy is something that's happening right now. There is a sense in which prophecy is just the proclaiming of the word of God. If that is the way we interpret that word prophecy, then it is something that is today. But there's also a sense in which prophecy always contained an element of direct revelation from God. Someone who had the gift of prophecy, God would actually give them direct revelation and they would foretell it or foretell it. And that is the gift. When we get to chapter 14 next week, we're going to see that's the gift. The Apostle Paul said, if there's only one gift you're going to seek, you have to seek that one. That's the one that's the most important. And yet he says here that even so, even though that I think that's the most important gift of all, without love, it's useless. It's meaningless. He says in verse number 2 that even faith is no good without love. Even faith, which is the most elementary and necessary of gifts. Acts chapter 11, verse number 18. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. I only believe today because God has gifted me with the ability to do that. And the same with you. It's a gift. And Paul says, even faith, that most elementary of gifts, no good without love. So Corinthians, without love, all other spiritual gifts are useless. And in verse number three, he goes on to say, without love, all sacrifice is useless. Jesus told the Pharisees one time, he said, you have your reward. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you have your reward. In other words, you're not getting nothing else for this service that you have performed. And the reason was is because they did it for selfish reasons and not out of love. Good deeds done toward men are vain apart from love. And Paul says here, even sacrifices made toward God are vain apart from love. It seems like he's talking about martyrdom here. He says, if I give my body to be burned, what else could we do? We do that, he says. And even that, that has no profit apart from love. And so we can spend more time on this, but I'll stop right there. Clearly, our motivation in everything, all matters of exercising of our spiritual gifts, ought to be love, right? The necessity of love. He goes on. The second thing we see here is in verses 4 through 7, and he talks about the nature of love. The nature of love. Now, remember, we're not talking here about eros. We're not talking here about phileos, brotherly love. We're talking about agape love, the love that you ought to have toward me. And I ought to have towards you. The love that we as believers ought to have one for another uh, in Christ. Agape love. Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words mentions that this is the characteristic word of Christianity. It's a word which really had very little meaning in the New Testament age until Paul came along and with chapters like 1 Corinthians chapter 13 grabbed that word and used it to describe the love that we ought to have one for another took on a life of its own as a result of that. And Paul here gives several descriptions of agape love, both positive and negative. Let's just fly through them real fast. Notice what he says. Love suffers long. Suffers long. In other words, it's patient. We've all seen how some marriages end after the very first disagreements come along. And while this is not talking about marriages, we've already described it nonetheless is a wonderful illustration, isn't it, just how hard it is sometimes for love to be patient. Some quit on God the very first time things don't go their way. But love really ought to suffer long. And how many people this morning are sitting at home, not worshiping God, not being obedient to his clear command for us to gather on the Lord's Day because somewhere along the line something happened that upset them. 
or somewhere along the line, somebody said something that offended them. And, and, they're, and they're not there. But love suffers long. Love is patient. He said love is kind. Kind. And all, you know what I believe with all my heart? That if we would just get our minds and our hearts around that one word, if we would just implement that in our lives, so many problems would be resolved. So many problems would be resolved in people's marriages. If husbands would just emblazon across the back of their eyeballs that word kind. Whatever she says, whatever she does, kind. And the same with the ladies. The same thing. Your husband comes home no matter how long-headed he might be. Kind. Kind. Think about it. It would solve so many problems. And how many ridiculous, silly disagreements that occur in churches would not have occurred at all if we would just be kind one to another? I love Ephesians 4.32. We all ought to memorize it. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So love is kind. He goes on, he says, love does not envy. Uh, we see marriages, we see Hollywood marriages, we see marriages be- between, uh, between people sometimes that break up because of the competition that exists there. Now, that ought not to be the case. Not to be the case in Christian marriages, and it certainly ought not to be the case in our church because we're not in competition there's nothing to envy look not every man on his own things but on the things of others let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus love is not envious and it would be ridiculous would it not if we really understand he's talking about spiritual gifts here and he's saying love is not envious if we're exercising our spiritual gifts how does envy ever enter into that picture when we understand what he said in chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit has chosen who gets what gift How do we envy? It's ridiculous to envy. And yet, we do sometimes. We have no reason, and yet it's a common problem. Love doesn't envy. He also says love doesn't parade itself. Kind of the opposite thing. In other words, love doesn't brag. It's just as ridiculous for somebody to brag about their spiritual gifts as for somebody else to be envious of somebody else's spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit is the one who has chosen. It's entirely His choice. What do we have to brag about? Absolutely nothing. Love doesn't parade itself. God forgive us when we do. Love is not puffed up. Sometimes the symbolism of the words in the Bible are wonderful, aren't they? Just think about that one. Love is not puffed up. You ever known anybody who was puffed up? I've known quite a few. Puffed up. In other words, arrogant. It's a great descriptive phrase. Some things just can't be said any better. Love is not puffed up, self-inflated, forgetting that all we have and all we are is a gift from God, forgetting that we have nothing to be inflated about. It's a gift. And yet there are those who are inflated. If you are such a one, stick a pin in it. Because the fact is, love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Does not behave rudely. I, I think that might be a reference back to chapter 11 and the head coverings on women thing. I think that because that's what was happening there. They were saying, we don't care what the culture of the day is. We don't care what tradition says. We're going to do whatever we want, even if that offends everybody in the room. Rude. And I think that's, that's what he's referring back to here. But it's a general truth, isn't it? Love isn't rude. It's not rude. Love doesn't seek its own. It's not selfish. Or if we were to state, if we were to state that positively, it is selfless. Boy, there's a theme we've seen all throughout Corinthians. Caring more about others than ourselves. And as always, Jesus is our example, because he said, or the Bible says of him, that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, selfless. So love is not provoked. 
unprovoked, doesn't throw temper tantrums. Love thinks no evil. And that's a good one. We ought to pause on that one for a minute. Love thinks no evil. In other words, love is not keeping score. How many of us keep score? How many of us have a little Rolodex in our mind of all the things that people have done wrong to us in the past? This Bible says here love doesn't do that. Pitch that Rolodex out. I read one time about Abe Lincoln. It said this, and I don't know who said this, but uh, I suppose it's true. It said his heart was as great as the world, but there was no room in it to hold the memory of a wrong. That's the way we ought to be. Love thinks no evil. One translation, it might be the NIV, says love keeps no record of wrongs. And that's what that means. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. In other words, it's not happy when evil wins. It doesn't rejoice when somebody is going through a bad time and we're smiling inwardly about that. That's not love. Love rejoices in the truth. It's happy when truth wins. Love bears all things, believes all things. It always trusts. It doesn't believe the worst. It always believes the best. It hopes all things, always, even when trust has been betrayed. Love continues to hope. Love endures all things, always. That's the nature of love. And while it is true that all of those things could be applied to the marriage relationship, what he's talking about here is you and me. What he's talking about here is our church. What he's talking about here is us as brothers and sisters. Do we see ourselves there? That's the nature of love that we ought to have here and in every local church. Moving on. Look at verses 8 through 13, and let's mention just briefly the never-ending quality of love. Now, we're going to talk more when we get to chapter 14 about some of these spiritual gifts. Let me just mention briefly, just for a second here, because he talks about it here. Some of the spiritual gifts we believe were temporary in nature. And we, don't, we believe that they are not in use today. And here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, he is contrasting that temporary nature of some spiritual gifts with the absolutely never-ending quality of love. Now, when you come to this matter of spiritual gifts, you'll find that there are some churches, some denominations that have differences of opinion. Uh, charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches would disagree with us on this. Uh, because we believe that things like the gift of tongues that we talked about, the gift of prophecy that we talked about, uh, at least as far as its supernatural aspect, uh, healings, miracles, things like that, we believe those were temporary in nature, and they're not for today. Some churches would disagree. But in verses 8 through 10, we see Paul's explanation. He says there very plainly, some spiritual gifts have an end. Prophecies will fail. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will vanish away. Those miraculous gifts had a very specific purpose, and that purpose was to provide authentication to the ministry of the apostles. The apostles did not get to walk in and hold up their 66 books of the Bible, completed canon of the Bible, like I can today, or like you can today. And so God gave these signs of an apostle to authenticate their ministry. And we see that called that all, all throughout Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Those who heard him, their ministry was confirmed with these signs. And wonder, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. In Mark chapter 16, this might be not as, as, as powerful of a passage, and maybe some, some would think this is a questionable passage to use, but I think it says this. These signs will follow those who believe. 
And literally that means those who have believed. I think it's referring literally to the apostles. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly it will by no means hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Every one of those things was seen in the New Testament with the exception of drinking poison. Every other one we see to have been a sign of the apostle. And so with the death of the apostles, the completion of the New Testament, the need for those gifts vanished. They were no longer needed, and I believe they ceased when the New Testament was completed. Uh, verse number 10, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And so he states specifically that the, the spiritual gifts are temporary, but he contrasts that. He says, but love, love, this agape love endures forever. One last thought, verse number 13, and we'll finish with the nobility of love. Look at verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. We'll cogitate on that phrase just for a minute. The greatest of these is love. Love is greater than faith. And faith is the one thing we must have in order to please God. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it's impossible to please Him. And yet love is greater than this, Paul says here. Love is greater than hope. When all else fails, we always feel like we have hope. And yet he says here, Love is greater than hope. The fact is, love is a vital quality in a believer's life. We mentioned earlier that love is an evidence of salvation to the believer himself. How do I know that I'm saved? One of the ways I know that I'm saved is because I have love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 3. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. You like being around Christians? That's a good indication that you're a believer. You don't? That's a good indication you might want to do a little self-examination. Because the fact is, it's an evidence of our salvation. Those folks who say to me that I don't have to go to church on Sunday. Those folks who say to me, I'd rather stay home every single Lord's Day. I, I, the first thought that comes to my mind is, well, that's evidence that you have never come to know Christ. It's it's evidence of salvation to the believer himself. It's also proof of salvation to the world. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. We used to sing that little chorus. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. It's evidence. And it's the ultimate, ultimate demonstration of Christ-likeness. This is my commandment, he said. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Than to lay down one's life for his friends. How do I, how do I love Lord? How, okay I've got all these descriptions here. But is there an example? Yeah. Just look at Jesus. Just look at me he says. I am the example. It's the ultimate demonstration of Christ likeness. Well I'm done. Our text verse this morning is actually not in chapter 13. It's actually the last verse of chapter 12. Where Paul said, earnestly desire the best gifts, but, and yet, I show you a more excellent way. Love is the more excellent way. I read where the day before Good Friday is referred to as Maundy Thursday, and I always wondered what that was about, why, where, where that name came from. And as I was studying this message, I came across a little blurb, blurb that said that, that that name, Maundy Thursday, is so-called from the Latin and I, I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's something like dice mandati. 
but it means the day of Christ's great mandate. The day of Christ's great mandate. That day, after he had washed his disciples' feet, he said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. His great mandate. And so let's obey that. Friendship Bible Church. Let's live in that more excellent way. We need to understand our spiritual gifts. and We need to be serving. We need to be selling our souls to the Lord's service every chance we can. But the more excellent way, love. Let us love one another. And let us ensure that everything we do is because of that. Let our love for Christ. Let our love for each other. As brothers and sisters, motivate us in everything.